think I'm the new guy because I haven't been here, but uh, uh, I'm back. It's nice to see you all uh, this morning and um, so thankful, grateful uh, to the elders and by extension to all of you for affording us vocational pastors some time away, uh, rest, study. This is a kind of a wonderful combination of vacation slash uh, reading sabbatical, but uh, I want you to hear that from me to you. Thank you for caring so well for us pastors. It's yet another very practical privilege of being able to be among you as one of you and to serve in this great role, and I certainly don't take that for granted. So uh, thanks very much. I gotta say, I love you guys. So I just wanna say that. Um, being away, and it's just super grateful, thankful uh, for you and for what the Lord's doing here and uh, what he wants to do. So again, uh, from my heart to yours, it's good uh, to, to be in a rhythm, though, and I don't know if some of you are thinking, too, with the fall. Some of you may like routine. Some of you may not like routine. I think the, the older I get, the more I need routine. Uh, good routine, good rhythms, uh, a rhythm of life. And so the, the Psalms really direct us to that. Uh, and so I'd encourage you, if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 28. That will be our text this morning. Psalm 28. And if you're able to, please stand as I read from God's word, Psalm 28. Psalm 28. To you, O Lord, I call, my rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help. When I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary, do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward, because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. O save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. Would you join me in prayer? Our great God and heavenly Father, I ask now that you would be especially gracious to us as we know you love to be. Give us supernatural grace, Lord, as we approach you this morning we study your word, particularly from Psalm 28. Give us humble hearts. Give grace to the preacher. I need your help, O Lord. Give grace for these dear saints gathered here who are listening and engaged. They also need your help. And some of us, Lord, may, may be aware of our great need for you this day, others perhaps less so. 
but I pray in your kind, sovereign grace, give to each person here illumination to see you more than anything, to see Jesus Christ exalted, ruling, and reigning, and in seeing you, Lord, that we might see ourselves better. We might see our lives clearer, and in doing so, our hearts would be softened and strengthened by your Holy Spirit. Work this in us, I pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you have been blessed by our summer series here in the Psalms. Uh, I, I know I certainly have. It's been good for me to follow along, watching online, staying on track with you all, even as I have been away. We've one more Psalm, Psalm 29. That's going to happen next week. And then we'll uh, be back in the Gospel of Mark. We'll finish our really three chapters there uh, in the fall. Psalm 28 is a prayer, and as a prayer, it is actually meant to be prayed by followers of God. And really like all the Psalms, Psalm 28, it's not just meant to be prayed, it's not just meant to be read, it's not just meant to be recited, but in fact, it's supposed to go deeper. It's actually meant to be internalized. It's meant to be experienced personally. You're supposed to feel it, in other words, at that soul level. And so in, in my studies this week and staring sometimes at this psalm and studying this psalm and thinking about it and praying about it and meditating about it, pushing repeat and doing that all over again several, several times, then I pushed it away and, and I, I came away with this one conclusion. I have a problem with Psalm 28. I got a problem with what I read here. And now before you start thinking, man, what happened on your sabbatical? Like, did you go liberal? Do you have a problem or something? That's not what I'm saying. My problem, if you will, with Psalm 28, it's not with God. It's not with the Bible. It's not with the sufficiency of the word. It's not even with David. My problem with Psalm 28 is that I don't often pray like this. I don't, my prayers often don't sound like this. So I had to be honest before the Lord and say, Lord, I, my prayers don't often sound like this. And I wonder if yours do. And I wonder even more, wh what are the sorts of prayers that you find yourself praying these days? What do they sound like? And so I began to think a little bit more and really before the Lord about, about why that is, about why maybe... I, Maybe I sometimes, I struggle to, to really pray as David prays here. Maybe there's several reasons for that. I think one of the reasons I think that it, it can be challenging is because oftentimes when we read the Psalms, we're introduced to language or to words or even to, to pictures here that are largely foreign to us. We, we don't really talk like this, so we're not quite sure what to do with that, so we just kind of keep reading, keep moving. For example, verse uh, one, when was the last time you said, Lord, be not deaf to me? Probably never, right? Unless you're British. Like, you got to have a British accent. Then you can say that. Be not deaf to me. But for most of us, we don't talk like that. That was a terrible British accent, too. <laughs> I, I get it. But we don't speak like that. And so oftentimes we think, well, there's such a disconnect there. I think again in verse one, David calls out, to the Lord, he says, to you, O Lord, I call my rock. And we might read that and think rock. That, 
That sounds like a good thing. I think we can get behind that. But what does that even mean? It, it, David calls out to God as his rock, but what does he mean by that? And, and is that something you and I can do in prayer? Can we also call out to God as our rock? And if so, what does that actually mean? And so I found myself saying, Lord, I, I got a problem here. I don't, my prayers don't really sound like this so frequently. But I want to learn how. I want to know how. And so I, uh, perhaps you can relate to that. And if that is you, then I think Psalm 28 will be helpful for all of us this morning. At its very basic level, Psalm 28 is essentially a cry for help. So if you've ever found yourself in a moment of deep need or trouble or some bit of suffering, this is how you actually want to pray. And even though David is, is in trouble, he's in crisis, his prayer here actually reveals a great deal of hope. And so, brothers and sisters, if, if we're really to get behind what David is praying here and to really understand where he's going, and in fact, if, if our prayers, if we want to learn how to pray a little bit more like David here, then I want to give us three statements, three statements of faith to help us. Three statements of faith that, that I trust will help bridge the gap between what we read here in Psalm 28 and our daily practical lives. Three statements of truth to also pray when you are in some bit of trouble or crisis. Here's statement number one. Lord, I need your help. Lord, I need your help. This is verses one and two. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear my pleas for mercy. When I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Now, we are not told exactly the specifics of the crisis or the trouble that David is facing here. But David is calling out to the Lord. He's pleading before him. He's crying out to the Lord. He's desperate, in fact, for the Lord to hear him and to pay attention to him, to hear his cries. He, he actually pleads with the Lord not to be deaf, not to be silent before him. So here in Psalm 28, David, David well knows that if God does not hear his prayer, well, he doesn't have a lot of hope. If God does not hear David's prayer here, he's, he's simply not going to make it. So Psalm 28 really is a prayer of great faith. I wonder if you've ever felt like that, if you've ever felt like God was really not listening. Maybe he wasn't paying attention to you. Perhaps you are earnestly engaging your heart with God in prayer. You, you pour out you, your heart to him. Maybe, maybe it's early in the morning. Maybe it's late at night. Maybe it's throughout the night. But yet even with that, there is sort of a hopeless sense that maybe God's not listening, that maybe he's not hearing, that maybe he is in fact even turned away from you. And then a sense of panic sets in. Maybe even despair. I think most of us have, have had that kind of experience in our lives. I was recently visiting with my dad's cousin, so my dad's cousin is an 85-year-old guy named Wally. Uh, Wally's a great guy. 
he's a retired pastor, ministered for 50 some odd years in various points in Western Canada. And I really didn't know Wally, but we're just in the process of kind of talking, several of us. And uh, it was it was just really encouraging to hear this guy who, 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 in the process of our conversation, talked about the many sleepless nights and the long days and prayers that he had prayed that didn't have immediate fast answers. And over the course of his life, to be able to look back and say, and even say with faith that he doesn't even quite know if there even were answers, but yet here's what God had done. And as an 85-year-old man, he could look back and, and say, you know what, through it all, I didn't understand but that didn't mean that God wasn't aware. And that didn't mean that God wasn't sure what to do. He always knew what to do. And it was such a good reminder for me that this is not an uncommon experience for God's people. It, it's actually comforting, isn't it, to know that, that David faced these sorts of experiences too. David's wondering if God is actually there. And yet, he, so in his prayer, he cries out and he says, Lord, I, I need your help. And so church, I think what is practically very helpful for us, very instructive for us here, is notice in David's crisis, in his deep need, notice what doesn't happen. David doesn't shut down emotionally, physically, spiritually. I mean, his troubles don't lead to either a kind of a spiritual paralysis or just an apathy. He doesn't throw up his hands and sort of say, well, what good is prayer? Hasn't worked in the past. It's not going to work now. Sort of resign himself to saying, well, it's not going to do any good. And David's not overly stoic here. He's not dishonest. And he's certainly not optimistically gregarious either. He's not saying, well, the sun will come out tomorrow. At least I hope the sun will come out tomorrow. He's not saying anything like that, is he? What we have here is, is a lot of faith on display in desperate times. David is honest, he's bold, he's desperately crying out to the Lord for his help. To you, O Lord, I call, and here's that word, my rock, my rock. Now you hear the word rock, I hear the word rock, and we think of good things, do we not? Something solid, something permanent. There's, there's a sturdiness to rock, and that's no doubt true. But when we think about this word rock in the, our Bibles, it actually has a very rich and deep meaning. I think of a passage like Exodus chapter 17. tells the story of this long, exhausting march of God's people, the Israelites, from the barren lands of Rephidim to Mount Sinai. They're headed for the promised land. But they did not get there overnight. And so here the Israelites are walking through the desert, and they are literally running on fumes. They have run out of water. And so they are walking by faith. God told them to keep walking, and so they keep walking where God was leading them. But as you know, they're not always walking happily. They're not always walking gloriously, are they? There's a whole lot of murmuring. There's a whole lot of grumbling. There's a whole lot of complaining. What if there's no water? at Mount Sinai? What if God is just moving the location of our graves? What if he, do you guys think we're kind of taking a straw poll here? Did God just bring us out here to kill us all? And then at the absolute limit of their endurance, when they could not walk even one more step, God tells them to stop. And he pointed 
to a very specific rock. And then he tells Moses to hit the rock with his staff. And Moses, in humble yet courageous obedience to the Lord, does exactly that. And those of you who are familiar with the story, you know what happened. Moses strikes the rock, and what happens? Nothing? No, a lot happens. Streams of life-giving, life-prolonging, life-enabling water burst out of this rock. And it made a river of salvation for the people of God in the wilderness to meet them in their great desperate need. We've talked about thin places before. Those, Those places where time and eternity collide, where the divine and the human meet. You have them in your life. We have them in Scripture. This is one of those. This is a very thin place. I'm guessing at that point nobody hardly breathed. But that's what it means to call God my rock. It means, God, you are, yes, my savior, my refresher, my restorer, my life enabler, my deliverer. You could almost say that rock is the Old Testament name for Jesus. It it seems like the Apostle Paul has this in mind. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 3. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all drank the same spiritual drink. Here we go. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So to speak of the Lord as your rock, Lord, you are my rock, as David does here, is then to refer to the life-giving, life-enabling, soul-sustaining, smitten rock of Exodus chapter 17, verse 6, who is in fact Jesus Christ. He is the rock, brothers and sisters, where people like you and me, where God's people go for help. He's the rock that we turn to for life. And it's because Jesus lived the life that we could never live. Through his sinless life, perfect obedience to God the Father, through his atoning death on the cross, not for his sins, but for ours, for yours and mine, and his resurrection from the dead, and the fact that he is now ruling and reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus gives his people, you and me, life, refreshment, renewal, and yes, his sustaining grace so that we will actually make it through every one of the trials, whatever, whatever comes our way. Truthfully, we would be utter fools if we did not turn to him, to Christ our rock, not just in times when we're aware of great trial, but all the time, every minute of every day. So what David shows us here in Psalm 28 is the kind of passionate, direct, desperate communication with God, the kind of passionate, desperate communication with God that God actually blesses. Lord, I need you. God, you must hear me. God, you will hear me. That's the kind of praying, brothers and sisters, that only comes from an ongoing sense of your need. Your, your holy desperation for God. 
Now, how desperate do you need to be, you ask, to, to pray something like that for your prayers to take on kind of the character of David here? How, how desperate do you need to be to pray like that? Well, the kind of desperation you might feel if you were on a boat and you're in an in the middle of the ocean and a violent storm rages around you and suddenly you are thrown overboard into the stormy waters and you are sucked down into the bottom of the ocean and a whale captures you, swallows you whole and you find yourself in the bottom of the ocean, a very dark and awful place and you don't have any Wi-Fi. <laughs> it's that kind of desperation. That's the desperation. That same phrase, verse 2, I cry to you for help. That's the same basic Hebrew, what Jonah prays when he actually does find himself in the belly of a whale, Jonah chapter 2, verse 2. Now, perhaps some of you this morning, you really relate because that's, there are challenges, there are some bit of trouble, some crisis, you find yourself there, irregardless, every one of us has challenges in our life today, perhaps challenges that you have prayed about and, and you're not quite sure, God, are you there? Do you hear Perhaps the only thing, th the best thing, brothers and sisters, that you and I can do, the first thing that we can do is to actually humble, humble ourselves before the Lord and to cry out to him for help. Lord, I need your help. Becky has an aunt, Aunt Carolyn. She lives in Tacoma. We spent, she was kind enough to house us a little while ago. And uh, that next morning, uh, I overheard a conversation between Aunt Carolyn and Ella. Aunt Carolyn, I think, is in her 80s, maybe 85. Uh, I guess if you're in your 80s, I really want to talk to you. Those are the people I hang out with. Um, and so here I heard this breakfast conversation between 85-year-old Aunt Carolyn and 16-year-old Ella, and they were talking about, of all things, vaping. And I'm pretty sure... 85-year-old Aunt Carolyn never imagined a day where she'd be talking to a 16-year-old about vaping. And the conversation about vaping then, and again, I'm just overhearing this, led to the conversation about a lot of the challenges, current events, and some of the troubles, concerns uh, in our day, locally, nationally, globally. And it, it just reminded me, I, I think probably most of us wish we didn't have to have the sorts of conversations that probably most of us are having and that we need to have with family members or loved ones or neighbors or colleagues at work, questions about gender, about what constitutes a boy and a girl, about issues of sexuality and why redefining these things will just lead to our absolute ruin. But we do and we must. And I was struck then by 85-year-old Aunt Carolyn. She is a feisty lady who loves Jesus. That is a really good combination. And hearing her just say to my daughter, you know, Ella, there's, there's a lot of troubles in this world, but I'm just going to keep praying. I'm going to keep sharing the gospel. I'm going to pray for revival because we really need Jesus. Amen, Aunt Carolyn. Amen. Lord, we need your help. That's statement of faith number one. Here's statement of faith number two. Lord, don't cancel me. Lord, don't cancel me. Verses three through five. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace to their neighbors while evil is in their heart. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil 
of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. This is the great fear. David's great concern here was that God no longer cared for him. That God was no longer be, would be his advocate. And that God would actually treat him as one of the wicked. And David is very well aware here of the fate of those who do not look to the Lord for help in their time of need. So he says he doesn't want to be dragged away with the wicked, verse 3. He doesn't want to be torn down, verse 5, like those who reject the Lord. So brothers and sisters, David knows here that if the Lord does not help him, if the Lord does not come to his aid and rescue him, his fate will be exactly the same as those who plot evil and do evil and wickedness against the Lord. So David here is asking the Lord to judge justly. To, to see rightly, for God to discern between the people who belong to him in faith and the people who want nothing to do with him. And so his earnest cry here, his prayer is, Lord, don't, don't drag me off with everybody else. Don't, don't drag me off with the wicked. Don't abandon me in my crisis. Lord, don't cancel me. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, again, we don't know specifically the immediate circumstance here we're not we're not told exactly what the what the concern was we're not actually even told why david might be so worried that the lord would drag him off with the wicked david was a sinner of course and there were certainly times when his conscious di conscience did condemn him but we're, we're not told here if that's what he's thinking about of any specific incident in his life so what do we what do we do with this well, this is where we want to look forward with, really, with the eyes of faith. We want to look forward with the eyes of the gospel. And if we do that, then we see, in fact, Jesus Christ as a human being. And we see Jesus Christ, and remember, as he ministered on this earth for those 33 years, that Jesus had every reason to pray as David prays here in verse 3. God, don't drag me off with the wicked. Don't treat me like the evildoers. Judge rightly. Jesus was publicly accused of being evil himself. Many lumped him in with the evildoers and the wicked, and yet all the way to the cross. What did Jesus do? He counted on God to judge him justly. He counted on God, his heavenly father, to see through the spin and uh, the gossip and the slander and the malicious attacks to clear his name and to rightly discern who really belonged to him. I don't need to tell you, but we got to have our boots on the ground here. If you're a Christian and you want to be faithful, in following Christ, well, you and I will be accused of all sorts of things. Frankly, all sorts of evil. If you believe in the sanctity of life, that human life begins at conception, you're, you could be branded a terrorist. Read an article that made that exact accusation this last week. If you actually believe that this is the word of God and because it is the word of God that it is true in every last word, which we do here, and it speaks authoritatively into our lives, 
means then that there is a definitive right and wrong, true and false, good and evil, and that ultimate reality is not left up to you and me to discern and to figure out for ourselves. If you actually believe in the Bible, well, you're branded fundamentalist, intolerant, a wingnut, completely crazy, bigoted, and on and on it goes. So the question is, brothers and sisters, how are we, how are we going to handle false accusations? How are we going to handle smear campaigns against us simply because we name the name of Christ? Well, ultimately, we're going to do what Jesus did. We're going to follow the example of Jesus and certainly what David shows us here in Psalm 28. And so we will pray, Lord, don't drag us off with the wicked. So our prayers probably more and more will sound a lot like this, Lord, you know me. I'm not an evildoer. Lord, don't drag me off with the wicked. Lord, you know how to, to rescue the godly. You know how to clear our name. You know, Lord, how to, how to reward the righteous and punish the wicked. And yeah, in faith, we then, we trust God to actually be God. I take some encouragement, and I hope you do as well, brothers and sisters, that there's really nothing new here. The enemies of God have been trying to cancel God, cancel the Bible, cancel Christians, cancel the church for over 2,000 years now. And they have not yet succeeded. And here's the breaking news. They won't. And that's not because you and I are sitting here and because we got all these gifts and talents and abilities and we can persevere. It's because we trust in Jesus. Because he says, my church will endure. And if you put your faith in me, so will you. Gospel tells us, the gospel reminds us, this is the beautiful part of the gospel, brothers and sisters, that we are saved by grace, not by our worth. So what that means then is even if you're walking in a really, really difficult season, troubles abound, if you belong to Christ by faith, your heavenly father will not cancel you. He's not going to drag you away with the wicked. But you know what he is going to do? He's going to give you grace, sovereign grace to sustain you. And he has the precious promise for you that if you hold out and you persevere, he will crown you with his righteousness and you will live for him for all eternity. I mean, that just magnifies God's grace, does it not? For people like us. It magnifies the, the beauty, the compassion, the great love of God for people like us. So that's step one. Feeling maligned, even persecuted. We're going to take our cues from God's word. We're going to pray more and more like this and be on our knees and humble ourselves before the Lord. But I want to add this. When you put your hope in Christ, as David does here in his time of trouble, as, as I want us to be able to do, that doesn't mean that you just sort of sit back, do nothing, hunker down, and wait for Jesus to come back. That, in fact, doesn't leave us in a position of sort of paralysis. Now, it's true, we especially in crisis, we may not quite, sh quite know what to do. And oftentimes we're maybe confused and, and we may not do anything. So ve very practically, there's, I think there's some great hope here. I, I read a book, one of the more helpful books, frankly, that I read. And I'm going to be honest here. I picked up this book and read it because of the title. And the title 
on getting out of bed. I figured I'm in a season of life where that actually means something to me, more than it did 20 years ago. And you might be thinking, parents, this is a great book for teenagers, right? Uh, Getting out of bed. Now, it might have application there. But this is actually a very short book. But it, it, it was actually so very helpful. It has some great insight. And it's written specifically for those who struggle with some degree of mental illness or mental affliction. And here's the spoiler alert if you pick this book up. Broadly speaking, that's all of us. To one degree or another. If you've ever struggled to actually get out of bed, and that could be just you're weary, you're tired, you're exhausted, you don't want to go to that meeting you know you have, you don't want to deal with that friend, you're not sure what to say in this certain situation, you struggle with anxiety, you have worries, the gerbils are released, you're super discouraged, maybe even depressed. Then you might find some help on this. What immediately uh, got my attention here is the author says this, especially in times of crisis or trouble when we're not sure what to do. Maybe we don't even have a clue what to do. He says, start by getting out of bed. Author Alan Noble writes this. Now, these are, this is a long quote here. I don't tend to do this, but I just want to give it to you and trust that the Lord will make it land on your heart. So hang with us here. The most fundamental decision is the decision to get out of bed. It communicates something. The decision to get out of bed is the decision to live. It's a claim that life is worth living despite the risk and uncertainty and the inevitability of suffering. One of the few things we can know for certain in this life. Rising out of bed each day is a decisive act. Living is a wager. It's a severe gamble. You don't know the suffering and sorrow that await. You don't know the heartache. But you know it's coming for you. To choose to go on is to reclaim with your life and at the risk of tremendous suffering that it's good. Even when it's hard, it's good. Even when you don't feel that it's good. Even when goodness is unimaginable, it's good. When we act on that goodness by rising out of bed, when we take a step to the block in radical defiance of suffering and our own anxiety and depression and hopelessness, with our heads held high, we honor God and his creation. We testify to our family, to our neighbors, and to our friends of his goodness. This act is worship. Maybe that will be helpful tomorrow as we all drag ourselves out of bed. He continues. The choice to get out of bed isn't made once per day, but continually as we do the next thing. At any moment, we may slip back into lethargy, into despair and hopelessness. If we allow ourselves to consider all of our obligations, our responsibilities, all the ways we must perform and improve ourselves, we'll become frozen in place. The world asks too much of us. A good number of these demands really are our responsibilities. To care for those around us, to use the gifts God has given us, and so on. In my experience, he writes, the only way to move forward is to dedicate yourself to doing the next thing. To do the next thing isn't to deny our other responsibilities, but to recognize that faithfulness is always an obligation for the present. Right now, we have a duty to serve God by doing whatever good work he has put before us. And if we trouble ourselves with all the things we're burdened with, the things of tomorrow or the next hour or minute, we will be overwhelmed. God asks only that we serve him now. 
Choose this second whom you will serve, and then serve him by doing the next thing. Place it in the forefront of your mind so you don't lose sight of it. I will get out of bed, put on the shoes, walk downstairs, make coffee, and so on. When we do the next thing, we communicate with our bodies that the next thing is worth doing. This moment is worth living. This life and all the responsibilities it entails are worth whatever hardships we experience. We need to be reminded of this. So do our neighbors. That's good. In our crisis, in our trouble, when we're not quite sure what to do, we pray, Lord, don't cancel me, judge rightly. And then by faith, and it is in faith and by faith, we get out of bed and we do the next thing the right thing before God because he promises to bless that. Statement of faith number one, Lord, I am in need. Statement of faith number two, Lord, don't cancel me. Finally, statement of faith number three, Lord, you are for me. Lord, you are for me. You're you're not against me. Pick it up at verse six. Into verse 7, blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. This has echoes of Psalm 121. David, there, asks the question, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? And the inference there, the really the the, the suggestion there is that David has, has looked all over the place. He, he's looked at others. He's looked within. He's sought people, but still can't find help. And so he says, the, the conclusion, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So David here is reminded of exactly where his help will come from. And brothers and sisters, notice it's not, it's not a what. It's not a thing. It's not a philosophy not a system of beliefs, systematic beliefs, check the box, sign off on that, turn the page. Yep, I agree with all those things. No, this is a who from the Lord himself. Do you know that our God loves to give strength and mercy and, and help, his divine help to those who really are weary, to those who really are discouraged and troubled? So you notice here, too, then, that, that David's countenance is lifted. He says, my heart exalts. In other words, David is happy here. And why is that? Well, it's not because suddenly God has waved his magic sovereign wand and suddenly all of David's enemies have fleed or that his, his friends will no longer betray him. We're not told that at all. In fact, we're, we're not told the answer that really comes to David. But we are told what made the difference. And what made all the difference for David here is simply that he now recognizes that God has heard him. That God has heard his prayer. And so David says, Lord, if you are the sovereign of the universe, you are working on my behalf to do me good. You are always seeking to bless. If you've heard my prayer, then I have hope. That's, a, that's the prayer of faith, brothers and sisters. And that's what turned David's heart 
from despair, from wondering if God was actually still there, to actually great hope. Lord, you do hear my prayers. You do care. You are for me. You're not actually against me. I'd encourage you, as David does here, spend some time meditating on God being your strength, on God being your shield. Again, there's another word there, shield. We probably don't use that in normal everyday language. And so oftentimes you just want to skip on, move through, and say, well, that's a good thing. But what does that even mean? And what it means is that because God is your strength and your shield, nothing will ever get to you without first going through God. That's what that means. So yes, the Lord is protecting you out in front and behind. But very practically, it means nothing will ever come at you by happenstance outside of God's ability to know and to help. If I said to my kids, and I'm sure I have, uh, if they were growing up, especially when they're younger, you know, as your, as your dad, I want you to know I love you, care for you, I am here, I'm here to protect you, ward off evil, so on and so forth. I think they'd be encouraged by that. But as they grow a little bit older, become a little bit more mature, at some point, they're going to know that, well, that's really good, Dad, but we know you can't protect us from every evil on this earth. And they're right. I can't keep watch on them 24-7. They're going to grow up, and Lord willing, they're going to leave. I mean, that sounded harsh. (laughs) That's not what I mean. But they will. That's the point. And so I'm not going to be there 24-7 in every situation, every circumstance of their lives. And so my protection of them as their earthly father is admittedly limited. It's finite. It's not. I'm not everywhere. Praise God. But not so with their heavenly father. For if you belong to God through Jesus Christ, then you have that sure and solid assurance that since he is for us and not against us, Romans 8, 31, even in our troubles and difficulties, we can walk in faith. And we can walk by faith, again, even in the troubles, and we can actually walk victoriously. Now, that may include the victorious limp, and oftentimes it does. But that is still victorious because God continues to strengthen us moment by moment through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so we find then his sufficient grace to get out of bed, to the courage to do the next thing, the right thing before God and to trust him for what happens. And we find hope that This earthly life oftentimes can be full of trouble and adversity, but it's only for this earthly life because a glorious eternity awaits. And if you're here thinking, wow, that sounds really good, but is that true for me? These promises are not true for everybody universally. They're not true for all people everywhere. He has promised these things to those who have turned from their sins and belong to Jesus Christ. And so if that's not you this morning, if you're investigating Jesus, I want to honor that. There's a time for investigating Jesus. There's a time to ask questions. There's a time to consider the the weightier things of life. But then there's also a time to decide. 
Today could be your day of salvation. Turn to Christ, repent of your sins, and know this kind of hope. And for those of you who belong to Christ and you are walking in this, we bear witness every single minute of every day to the greatness and the glory of God to meet us in our great need, to sustain us, and yes, to strengthen us every last step to heaven. And that's the sure and solid hope that is ours because of Christ. Let's pray.